All right, let's go ahead and find our places, everybody. Let me get a couple of other bits of information out of the way before we get started as you're finding your places. Let me reiterate what Troy said about Happy Independence Day, America. I, I, I think everybody's aware. I, I do think that it's just important for us to remind ourselves, let's keep praying for our country. Last week we learned how prayer actually really helps. Let's really do that. Let's really pray for our country. We, our country needs us to be praying for them. And uh, we need to be praying for them as well. Let me give you a very quick update about the church plant in Columbus. Um, we go every Sunday night. We'll be, a group of us will be going again tonight. And um, we have located a church building in Westerville that is willing to let us use it in Sunday evenings. They only meet on Sunday mornings. So that's way better than a hotel. And uh, just keep praying for this group as we're slowly forming uh, what hopefully the Lord will allow to be a biblical local church in, in the greater Columbus area. So be praying for that. I do have one other announcement, and this announcement is not easy. Um, some of you have maybe already noticed on Facebook, social media gets the word out around the whole world very quickly about events that happen. Um, but just as of last March, when we had our REACH conference, we began to support a new missionary who was with us in the conference, a man named Brandon Smith, a single young man, if you'll remember, who's been in Morocco for 10 years. And uh, Brandon came out of my home church in Decatur, Alabama, and Brandon's just an amazing young guy, 40, I say young for me, 41 years old, and uh, very, very unexpectedly on Thursday passed away. And uh, it, it was, it, it's still, nobody really knows what happened. Uh, a dear mutual friend that we have, Pastor Jay Shug, who's been with us many times in our conferences, he's been a friend of mine for years, um, was with him. And um, Brandon just kind of laid down and became unresponsive. He just wasn't feeling well, and Jay was administering CPR, and, well, he just never came back. So um, the Lord took him home. And uh, it's glorious for Brandon, and uh, Brandon, like I said, is single. He's the only child. Uh, be praying for his parents. His parents are godly people. They fear the Lord. They love the Lord. They're willing to trust the Lord even through this. But uh, Brandon's funeral will be today at 3 p.m. Central Time, so that'll be 4 p.m. our time if you want to be in prayer during that time. I'm sure it'll be mentioned again tonight at the prayer meeting um, at Decatur Baptist Church and and. Our friend Joe McCaig will be leading that potentially with Pastor Jay as well. So Brandon, um, we, we do have these prayer cards because he's one of our supported missionaries in the coffee shop here. And well, if you just want to grab one on your way out and just remember to pray for Brandon's family and, and pray for Brandon's brothers, Christian brothers and sisters in Morocco. Um, they obviously have found out they're grieving as well. And um, listen, this... This life we live is not promised to us, right? You, don't, you get what you get, and let's make the most of what we get, right? So that's, that's why we study what we study. That's why we try and leverage our life on purpose, um, because you never know. No, Brandon was young and healthy, and nobody would ever thought that there was anything wrong. I don't, we don't know if it was a heart attack. We don't know what happened to him, but he was feeling fine. They went out to lunch. He wasn't feeling fine. He laid down, and the Lord took him. It just, it just happened. So be in prayer for Brandon's extended family. Uh, as a result of that. Okay, 
2 Corinthians chapter number 1. We're going to be finishing chapter number 1 in 2 Corinthians today. This is our new book study series we'll be going through for however long the Lord has us going through it. I do want to set the stage for this morning uh, with a question for you. And here's my question. How long do you think you'd continue to volunteer and to sacrifice and to help others if while you were doing it, they were criticizing and attacking you for doing it. Let me ask you that question again and just think about it. How long will you continue to volunteer and to sacrifice and to serve and to help other people if all the while, while you're doing it, they're criticizing and attacking you for doing it? Well, I mean, everybody has their own answers. But many people would say, well, forget it. Help yourselves then. I mean, if you don't appreciate what I'm trying to do for you, well, then find it on your own. Well, that's kind of, be what, we're, that's kind of what we're going to be looking at today. So 2 Corinthians is a book that is focused on the theme of ministry. It's a, a personal, a very personal look into the life and the personal ministry of the Apostle Paul. It was very personal to the Apostle Paul because... As we'll see today and many other times as we go through this book, he was personally attacked. And what we find in 2 Corinthians is that frequently Paul is forced to defend himself as a result of these personal attacks that were levied on him. Chapter number one, as we have seen coming through and today we'll finish, uh, has the theme of suffering because the key to effective ministry and fruitfulness is suffering. And suffering can come in many ways. We saw, for example, back in verse number 4, it says, The Lord comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. So he comforts us in all of our tribulation so that we can comfort others who are in any of various kinds and sorts of trouble. That means that suffering and trouble can come in various ways, right? It certainly can. So the first point I want to kind of lead out with in this study today is, in your notes, is that ministry suffering doesn't come only from the world, the flesh, and the devil. It doesn't come only from the world, the flesh, and the devil. It can also come from other Christians. Christians who complain and malign and attack you for any or no reason at all. See for reference Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness. We just came through the book of Numbers. Okay, well, we understand that truly, doctrinally, you, you doctrine guys, I know you're out there, and doctrinally, truly, we, the Christian only has three enemies. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. I, I understand that. Well, that means then when a brother or sister in Christ is carnal and attacking God's servants, at that moment of attack, that brother or sister is being used of the devil to accomplish his purposes, to discourage, for in this example, the apostle. So there's various kinds of troubles that we can find ourselves in. And if you were with us last week, we looked back in Acts chapter 19 because that was the reference from which Paul wrote verse number 8 
when he said we were pressed beyond measure and we despaired even of life. And we looked at that story in Acts chapter 19 where there raised up a, a riotous mob of people. They were angry at the loss of income because they made shrines to, in the temple of Diana and people were getting saved and they're casting aside their idols and these people are losing their income and their influence. And so these trials came from without on to the Apostle Paul and his fellow laborers. But the Bible says that there's also trials that come from within. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 5, Paul references fightings without and fears within. They can come from both directions. So this week, so last week it was more about the trials that are without. This week we're going to talk more about those that can be within. Because the suffering involved that Paul's going to reference in the last part of this chapter has to do with what he says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six, and we've looked at that for a couple of weeks now, what he calls the care of all the churches. The care of all the churches. Which sadly, at times, can also include, also included in that verse, perils among false brethren. And so... Paul had to deal with that, and actually, if you went back to the book of Acts, and he's still in the city of Ephesus, and he addresses the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, and he makes this statement. Notice Paul's statement to the leaders of the church in Ephesus in Acts 20, 28 to 30. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this. That after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Those are troubles from without. Grievous wolves are going to enter in among you to try and devour you. But it doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 30. Also of your own selves shall men arise. What are they going to do? Speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So in verse 29, you have troubles that come from without. In verse number 30, you have troubles that rise up from within. I've experienced both, loud and clear. I can generalize. There's always bleed over. There's always elements of both at any particular time in a, in a man's ministry. But if I generalized, I've said this to you before, the overarching opposition of our ministry in Albania was from without. The devil used the world system to make great barriers of opposition to our ability to advance the gospel. Life was just very hard from without. But within the body of the church, it was such an oasis, it was such a refuge and the church genuinely loved one another and, 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 and bind themselves together regularly to make sure that we would work together because the enemy was very clearly on the outside. Then my family moved to the United States and began to minister in this culture, in this context, in these days in which we live. And I would say the overarching theme of troubles in church ministry in these days in the United States is from within. Because we don't 
hate the world, we kind of love the world. Now, these last few months, it's been different. <laughs> but generally speaking, we love the world. The world has been very, very good to us in the United States of America. And we've enjoyed its luxury, and we've enjoyed its offerings. And the problem with Christianity today in the Western world is we're friends with the world. But if you're friends with the world, well, you're on the wrong side of that. Because the Bible says you're enemies with God. And so from within the church, you see, because we're funny people. Everybody, look, everybody's got to be fighting somebody. And if we're not fighting the world or the devil, well, we're going to fight each other. And so what we find is there's trouble from within. And when there's trouble from within the body of Christ, listen, that's, in my humble opinion, and in my personal experience, way worse. Way worse. Because now you're looking around the room and you're wondering who you can trust. Now you're looking around the room and you're wondering who's going to be the guy stabbing you in the back tomorrow. After you've labored and prayed and served together for years, all of a sudden they're going to turn on you? That's, that's much more devilish. That's much more devilish. Well, today, specifically, we'll be starting in verse 15 and going to the end of the chapter. Paul defends his ministry before these of Corinth, some of which, obviously, have attacked his character. And the, the issue at hand is, is that Paul had made a reference earlier to them that he said that he would come back and visit them again. But he didn't come back and visit them again. And so he's going to deal with this issue. You said you'd come, but you didn't come. And so his response is what we're going to be dealing with, and we're going to learn some things. So I've given the title to the message, Responding to Carnal Criticizing Christians. Because if you're going to be an effective minister of Jesus Christ, well, you're going to have to learn how to respond to carnal criticizing Christians. I wish it wasn't so. The Lord knows it's so, and he actually inspired eternal scripture so that we could be prepared for such a thing. Please follow along. I'll start reading in verse 15. And in this confidence, I was minded to come unto you before that you might have a second benefit, and, that, and to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. When I therefore was thus minded, I use lightness, or the things that I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ, and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul, that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy." For by faith ye stand. Now, when you just read through the Bible and you read through a passage or a section of Scripture like this, you may or may not take the time to just park for a while and dig into what's really going on. Because, granted, the language, as I just read through at one time, doesn't just roll off the tongue into the ear 
like it's just super clear. So we're going to spend some time, we're going to understand it, and I think God's got something for us to learn through it. So let's ask him to be our teacher, and we'll jump into our outline. Heavenly Father, we love you. As always, we're so thankful for what you do in our hearts and our lives. Lord, we're saddened by the difficult things that we see going around us in life. We're saddened for our dear brother Brandon's family, although he's in glory with you. Lord, I do pray that as we get into your word right now, I pray, God, that you would just help us have laser focus and understanding. Your spirit would be our teacher, that we would have the ears to hear and the, and the minds to comprehend exactly what you want us to understand from this passage of Scripture so that we can apply it to our lives. Lord, we need you desperately. We need you today, right now, to speak to us so that we can have the light that we need to be able to live our life for you. Uh, if ever there was a time we needed it, if ever there was a time you would call on your family to take a stand, it's now. And I pray you'd help us to do that because there will be carnal, criticizing Christians around us even today, even tomorrow, even the next day, if we intend to stand for what's true in these dark days in which we live. So we ask for you to guide us. We ask for you to be honored as we respond in faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. How should you respond to such people? Well, you know, it's a sermon, so there's three points. And the first one is, well, just tell the truth. Just tell the truth, right? So we'll look at the first few verses. And what we see is, is that Paul has to respond to them concerning his manner of conversation. So people didn't like maybe not only what Paul had to say, they didn't like the way he said it. Think about that. They didn't like what he said, but they also didn't like the way he said it. Can, can I be so bold as to say to you that I, I think I know what Paul was feeling here? Do, do I need to explain to you why I think I know what Paul was feeling here? See, Paul's frustrated. He's frustrated because of this discourse. And if Paul used text shorthand, it would be SMH. People who don't use text shorthand, shaking my head. We're, we're a full-service church here. If Paul used emojis, it would be the face plant. For real. If you go back with me to verses 13 and 14, the end of last week, verses 13 and 14, let's remind ourselves going into verse 15. Paul wrapped up last time. He says, For we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge, and I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end, as also notice ye have acknowledged us in part that we are your rejoicing even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And so then he goes in verse 15 and he says, And in this confidence, what confidence? In the confidence that you have already acknowledged us. You have already acknowledged that we who God has used to bring you the gospel are a source of your rejoicing. 
And because of that very confidence that you recognize what God is doing and what God has been doing through us in your lives, in this confidence, I was minded to come unto you a second time. Because of that basis, because of your trust, because of your understanding, I was minded. Was minded just means I was thinking about it. I thought to do that. Now you say, where did all that occur? Well, you could turn the page backwards to 1 Corinthians 16, and you'll see exactly where he made that comment. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 5, he said, Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia. And it may be that I will abide, yea, in winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. And so his plans, his ideas of where he would come and go and how he would get from where he would get to is basically what he describes as he comes into 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 16. And it says in verse 7, you have to get verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 7, For I will not see you now, by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you. Notice, if the Lord permit. If the Lord permit. So Paul was clearly minded to return. He wanted to return. He was looking to plan to return. But I mean, let's just be fair. He was clear. He wasn't sure that it was going to happen. That's why he said, if the Lord permit. Nobody really knows what tomorrow might bring. And if you want to be an adult, you're required to give Paul the same amount of grace that you expect somebody to give to you. Because the truth is we all do that from time to time. We all make plans and have ideas and maybe even make statements. If we're smart, we'll say, if the Lord will, if the Lord permit. My idea is to do this and that, right? So why did he plan to come back? Well, it says that ye might have a second benefit. He wanted to come back to them and visit them again so that it could be a blessing to them. It's not because it was just so convenient for Paul. He was doing it as a favor. He was doing it as an act of grace. And because he didn't go back, well, they're using this and throwing it in his face. And so he says in verse 17, when I was therefore thus minded, when I, when I had this mindset, as opposed to a different mindset. So, for example, thus-minded of the same mind, as opposed to otherwise-minded. I gave you a reference in Philippians 3.15 that uses both references in there. Let us, as many as be perfect, be thus-minded, and if anything, you shall be otherwise-minded. God shall reveal even this unto you. Okay, so the idea is either you're of one mind or... You're of a contrary mind, right? He says, when I, when I had my mind that this is what I wanted to do, he said, did I use lightness? Did I use lightness? In other words, do you think that I was thinking about doing that? Do you think I make such decisions, I take stuff that lightly? you think I take it lightly when I make a decision like that? Is that what you're saying, that I use lightness? Are you saying that, that I don't seriously consider the things that I do the things that I plan, the things that I would or could be a part of? Do, do you think that, that I just got a better offer and decided to blow you off? Is that, is that what you're thinking? 
Because that's actually not what happened. He goes on and he says, or the things that I, see how he's defending himself? He's, he's clarifying. He says, look, are the things that I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? You, you think I'm carnal because it worked out that I couldn't come? Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're accusing me of at this time? Are, are you saying that the things that I purpose, I'm just making it up as I go? I purpose according to the flesh? That with me there should be yay, yay, and nay, nay. <laughs> okay. You know, it's not whip, nay, nay. I get that. But who says yay, who says yay, yay, nay, nay? I mean, that's kind of different. What's he really talking about? Well, thanks for laughing, by the way. Listen, we're going to explain. First off, he just wants to address this issue. Do you think I'm carnal in my decision-making? Listen, James chapter 5 and verse number 12. you got to get this. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath. Here it is. But let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay. This is the description. This is what you need to understand. Lest you fall into condemnation. In other words, in James 5... The Lord is saying a Christian should never have to swear an oath that he's going to tell the truth because a Christian should always tell the truth. The idea is you shouldn't have to say, I swear to God, I swear this time. I swear I'm telling the truth this time because when you say that, it means that there's a bunch of other times I'm not. And he's saying a Christian person, when you say yay, you mean yay. And when you say nay, you mean nay. Now, with that context, he's saying, do you think that the things that I purpose, I purpose according to the flesh? And this is the key. That with me, there should be notice, yay, yay. And really the key word you need to get is and nay, nay. At the same time. In other words, do you really think that when I say yay about something, that really deep down in my heart I'm thinking, nah, I ain't doing that. I'm going to tell you I'm going to do it, but I ain't really going to do it. That's what he's saying. That's what the yay, yay, and nay, nay is all about. When you say yay, you mean yay. A Christian person's word should be good. You say what you say and your word is good. Because only, only a carnal person would say one thing when they mean something else. And this, my friends, is where the dirt hits the fan. Now I gave you the King James version of that. You don't need me to arc, update the archaic English. This is a real problem. Because when you say yay and really you mean nay, that's deception. That's hiding the truth. And why would you do such a thing anyway? So people will like you? To 
protect your reputation? Because you have already predetermined that they can't handle it if you told them the truth? Why don't you give them a chance? You don't know what people can handle. In fact, to be fair, that's above your pay grade. You have one job. Tell them the truth. Remember the story of Abraham? Abraham, God bless him. I'm sure he'll fare far better than I will in eternity, but let me just say, he blew it too. Remember that whole mess with his wife Sarah and she's my sister and that whole deal? You know, he did that twice. He did that twice, man. And the second time he did it in Genesis chapter 20, it was with pagan king, a guy named Abimelech, and you know the story. He goes there and he's like, man, let's say you're my sister because otherwise, I mean, you're such a babe. They're going to take you anyway. They'll probably kill me and I don't want to die, so let's just say you're my sister. And, and God blessed Sarah for her submission and God honored and blessed her for it. But I don't exactly know went down, what went down that day in that conversation, but somehow or another they went with this plan. Abimelech takes Sarah. He's going to make her his wife and God steps in. And he's like, whoa. What are you doing? That's Abraham's wife. And I'm paraphrasing. Go ahead and read it in Genesis 20. And, and Abimelech's like, what are you talking about? He said, she was his sister. And the Lord's like, give her back to Abraham because that's his wife and don't mess with her. And Abimelech proves his level of morality at this point in history is much higher than Abraham's. And he returns Sarah back and he and he rightly rebukes Abraham. What are you thinking? Man, God was going to kill me because you lied to me. Remember what Abraham said? You know, I didn't really lie. She is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And well, I also took her to be my wife. Did Abraham tell the truth or did Abraham lie while telling the truth? His yea became nay, didn't it? No spirit-filled child of God communicates that way. They don't. But carnal people do that all the time. No, Paul's response to carnal criticizing Christians was to tell the truth. And you'll find as we get into the next session, this Paul's speech. Now, Paul's speech is defined a lot of different ways. And in every one of these categories, we'll go through this list fairly quickly. Um, I want you to notice that every one of these references or in every category, there is a reference that comes directly from the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is an amazing book to study because so many cross-references are within 2 Corinthians. It's amazing how Paul re-emphasizes the very same things over and over again. Let's look at some of the ways Paul's speech is categorized in this book. First, it's plain. He's a plain talker. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Let's look at that. He says, we use great plainness of speech. What exactly does that mean? And then he goes on and he talks about Moses put a veil over his face. The children of Israel couldn't fully see the glory of God. We'll get to that in chapter 3 in a, in a little bit, okay, later. But 
The idea is this. Paul's speech, unlike Moses with a veil, Paul's speech was never veiled. Paul spoke with great plainness. Nobody ever had to wonder what he meant by what he said. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10, his speech is called contemptible. Now I want you to notice that's a very negative thing. Contemptible means that that it it invokes this idea of of scorn. Uh, In other words, they're saying he's just mean. Now to be fair, when you read 2 Corinthians 10.10, you'll find that that's their accusation of him. It doesn't mean that it actually was that way. Actually, if you go to that passage and you look at the verses, what you'll find is that his speech was weighty and powerful. They just didn't like it, so they called him mean. 2 Corinthians 11, verse number 6. Look at this one. It's rude. Yeah, I should have told you that first. Okay, though I be rude in speech. Paul admits to being rude. And you're like, well, that's, that's not very Christian. Um, well, to be rude in speech, literally, that same word is translated some other places as unlearned. And the idea is rude speech is comparable to um, street language. And I don't mean cursing. I don't mean vile speech. I mean, I mean common vernacular as opposed to a higher level of educated language. Okay. So in other words, Paul was a plain talker. Paul spoke in the language of the people. Paul used terms that, by the way, Paul was highly educated. But he spoke in such a way that everybody could get it. He used common language. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse number 10, his speech is also called sharp. He used sharpness when he spoke. He got right to the point. He didn't beat around the bush. He didn't dance around subjects. But if you look at that verse, why did he do it? He did it for the purpose of edification, not destruction. He didn't just speak harshly to tear people down. He got to the point to build people up. Now, when you hear communication like that, it's not always the easiest to hear. But it should comfort you to know that it is, the next category, true. It is true. So in Galatians 4.16, Paul says, what, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Why is that the dividing line? Why is it that you're so upset when all I've done is tell you the truth? Remember, we looked at 2 Corinthians eleven six. 6. He says, yet though I be rude in speech, but not in knowledge, you might not like the vocabulary. Good luck arguing with the, with the veracity, with the truth of it. You know that what I'm saying is true. You know it. And it's not only true. The last point is it's also sincere. Getting back to chapter number two, where he talks about we're not as some who corrupt the word of God. We'll get into that when we get into that. But he says, of sincerity we speak. 
We're not, we don't corrupt words. We don't twist things around. We don't manipulate and change and destroy. We just give it to you the way they are. Nobody ever would wonder what Paul was trying to say. He said what he meant, and he meant what he said. And he used language that everybody could understand. Because he knew that it was the most important thing for you to be able to clearly understand the truth. This is ministry. It's eternal things. It's the souls of men and the word of God and putting them together. And it's the job of a teacher and a preacher especially to communicate it straightforward, plain, waist high, right over the plate. You deal with it, but it's God's word. And if I can't present it in such a way that you can understand it, if I spend so much time sugarcoating it and beating around the bush just to spare your feelings at the expense of truth, is that better for you? And who is it that I'm trying to please anyway? God forbid. So in your notes, Paul's personal ministry communication was clear, direct, and truthful. Paul isn't subjective or insincere. He isn't passive-aggressive. He doesn't say one thing and mean another. He doesn't dance around a subject and drop hints and hope that people will get it. Because he doesn't want to be accused of being unkind or, God forbid, lose his income or status in the community. That's not how Paul did it. Paul would never, ever be guilty of Romans 16, 17 and 18. Where he says, now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. And avoid them, for they that are such serve not, not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And how do they do it? By good words and fair speeches. Deceive, deceive, deceive the hearts of the simple. You better watch out for all those smooth talkers telling you lies, dividing the flock. The Holy Spirit says if you find them, you mark them, and you avoid them. And to not do so is carnal. It's sinful. Romans 5.15, now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another. This is a key little phrase. According to Christ Jesus. Because now we get back to 2 Corinthians 1, verse 18. He goes on and he says, and this will be our transition into the next point. As God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay at the same time, in other words. In other words, Paul fashioned his manner of communication based on the character of God himself. So I need to get moving. I, I camped out a little too long in point number one. So point number two is nothing but the truth. Nothing but the truth. In other words, Paul's manner of Christ-likeness is the thing that motivated his manner of speech. As God is true. Well, we all know that 
now, point A uh, in your notes, the word is the truth. Amen? Amen. The word is the truth, and, and I do want you to take note that the W is capitalized because that refers to verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. There's no ambiguity in the person of Jesus Christ. It shouldn't surprise any of us that Jesus Christ is called the Word, capital W, of God, John chapter 1, verse 1. He is the Word of God. He's the Word that was eternally existing. And then Jesus Christ, therefore the Word, is the truth. You know this already, right? It says that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was not yea and nay. In him was yea. He is the truth. And so John 1.1 goes then into John 1.14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Well, that's Jesus Christ, and we beheld his glory is the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Notice, full of grace and truth. He was full of truth. And everybody knows John 14, 6, right? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. In fact, Jesus Christ himself, nobody's going to argue this point. It's so doctrinally clear. Jesus Christ is so much the truth. Don't you think it's fair that we say that he's nothing but the truth? He's nothing but the truth. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, notice we lie and do not the truth. Because in Titus chapter 1 and verse number 2, it says God cannot lie. And in 1 John chapter 2, it says that no lie is of the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth, and everybody knows that, and he's so much the truth that, well, he's nothing but the truth. Well, not only is... The word is the truth, but letter B, the word is the truth. <laughs> See what I did there? It's a small W this time. And now we're going to go into verse number 20 where it says, For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen unto the glory of God by us. So Jesus Christ is truth and so his word is also the truth. And the written word of God now referred to as the promises of God in verse number 20, right? are also the truth. You guys know John 17, 17. Again, this is review for most of you. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word, small w, is truth. The communicated message, the scriptures. In fact, there's so much similarity between the capital W word and the small w word, you couldn't possibly divide them if you tried. People try. One testifies of the other and vice versa. And it says, all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him are amen. Those are affirmations of truth. The word amen literally just means, so be it. May it be so. Amen. That's right. It's an affirmation of truth. 
unto the glory of God by us. So notice this. I want you to get this. Don't just read those little epitaphs at the end of sentences like it's a necessary postage stamp. Pay attention to the words, unto the glory of God by us. God's glory is the thing that manifests his very presence. That's what it is. And the glory is revealed, Paul says, by us. Me, Silas, and Timothy. Why? How can he say such a thing? Because Paul's speech was so plain and so clear and so true and so unambiguous that it revealed God's presence. God's glory becomes manifested by us because he is nothing but the truth and Paul just told the truth. That's what he did. So we as Christians identify ourselves with Jesus Christ in every way. Remember last week we saw Colossians 3.3 that we are dead and our life is hid with Christ in God. Our identity wouldn't exist but for Jesus Christ after salvation. So the next two verses, 21 and 22, are several things that he has done in and through and for us in our lives. Number one, he established us. Now, we say established. In the King James, it's established. Okay, it's the same. He set us in Christ at salvation, which gives us our new identity. He anointed us, number two, with the Holy Spirit of promise, giving us understanding to learn the truth. 1 John chapter 2 And verse number 27 talks about that anointing. And that anointing is the very Spirit of God that is in you now, Christian, so that nobody has to teach you anything. The Spirit will teach you. But not only that, that anointing gives you the power, the ability to then proclaim and preach His Word to others. That's what Jesus said in Luke 4.18. In Luke 4.18, man, He was anointed to preach the gospel. So he established you, he anointed you, and he sealed you. Number three, man, you are eternally secure forever. And he proved it by giving us his word, his very promise. It's referred to as the earnest of our inheritance. That earnest is is a down payment, a non-refundable down payment that you promise to come through with the deal at the end. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Let me ask you something. Knowing all of these things, and most of point two are review for most of you, knowing all of these things, just ask yourself a question. How would you expect a real spirit-filled Christian to communicate. How would you expect it? With innuendo, with hints and half-truths? Well, number three, we're going to wrap this thing up. I bet you can guess what the blank is. It's the whole truth. It's the whole truth. Verses 23 and 24. This is Paul's clarification. This is the Paul Harvey rest of the story. Let me just tell you something. You guys know this. I keep saying stuff that you know. I mean, I don't don't know why you pay me. (laughs) Thank you. 
Can I just say to you? Because we need to be reminded, by the way, that's the truth can be truth without needing to get the whole truth. I mean, that was, that was good enough to say again. Y'all ready? The truth can be truth without you needing to know the whole truth. You don't always have to tell everybody the whole truth. It's not always easy. That doesn't mean you're lying. Abraham was lying. Listen, there's always a backstory that people don't know about. And if you have a good relationship with the person who's communicating, you don't, you don't need the backstory. You don't care about the backstory. You trust that what they're telling you is the truth. And you roll with the truth. But it's when that relationship isn't that good. Then there's doubt. Then there's suspicion. And this is the case with the Corinthian church. There were at least some people, right, who doubted Paul's story and started grumbling and criticizing. So in order to defend himself, in order to clear off a space, in order to make it clear, in order to stand for the truth, he's required to give them the whole truth. And the whole truth lands in verses 23 and 24. And in fact, he starts off with a statement that's kind of odd. He, he has to, what seems like, swear to them he's telling them the truth after he knows you're not supposed to do that. But not because Paul doesn't always tell the truth. It's because they think he's lying. So he starts off in verse 23. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul. It's as though he's saying, with God as my witness. I swear to God. A similar sentiment is given in 2 Corinthians 11. Verses 10 and 11, where he uses it this way, he says, As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Wherefore, because I love you not, God knoweth. You don't have to believe me. You don't have to agree with me. God knows. God knows. I call God for a record upon my soul. This is in your notes. The reason Paul didn't return to Corinth? was for their good. He had a reason, and it was for their good. He goes on and he says that to spare you, I came not as yet unto Corinth. To spare means to hold back. To spare means to refrain from something. Rut row. <laughs> now they're in for it. The real reason Paul didn't come back was because he knew if he did, he'd have to straighten out some more stuff. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 1 would be the very next verse we get into, continuing next week, Lord willing. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. Because if I did come again, since you haven't worked out your problems yet, it would have been a little heavy for you. 
I wouldn't be able to spare. I wouldn't be able to hold back anymore. You jump to the end of this book, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 2. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time and being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned and to all other that if I come again, I will not spare. Say what you want about me and my ministry. Say what you want about how I carry out what I do. When I show up, we'll see. We'll see. I didn't come because I wanted to give you guys a break. I wanted to give you guys a chance. Because when I come, I'm going to be required to say verbally the things that I wrote in 1 Corinthians. It wouldn't be a pleasant visit. So Paul postponed a visit out of love. Out of love, to give them time to work out their issues between them and God alone. Which is what he says in verse 24. Not for that we have dominion over your faith. It's not because we just have to always tell you what to do. But we're helpers of your joy for by faith ye stand. You stand or fall before the Lord yourself according to your own faith. Their joy would come when they ultimately remove the sin and the false doctrine. We'll see that in the next chapter. And Paul was their helper because he helped point out some things. But they had to learn to stand by faith on their own or they would never stand. And Paul was hoping, look, I, I figured if I gave you a little extra time, you'd be able to work it out on your own. And if you can work it out on your own, man, that's, that's better. And I wanted to help you. I wanted to help you have even more joy. So I gave you a little extra time. But apparently, <laughs> they needed the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Or they weren't going to get it. And... As a result, friends, that is how you deal with carnal, criticizing Christians. You speak truth. You speak it plainly. And you confront and deal with any issues that exist. Because anything more than that, Jesus said, is evil. Matthew 5, 37, let your communication be, here it is again, yay, yay, nay, nay. Let every yay be yay, let every nay be nay. Say what you mean, mean what you say. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. But wait a minute, let me explain what, no, 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 no need. There's no need. Listen, people like that, they're out there. They're everywhere. Some of you might be in this room. I know some of them listen online. It's okay. We're just going to keep telling the truth. We'll just leave the results to God because that's what he's called us to do. 
I know this. I know this. At the judgment seat of Christ, I'd much rather be the guy who told the truth and maybe hurt somebody's feelings than to be the guy who criticized the guy who told the truth. Good luck with that. So Jesus said in John 8, 31, 32, to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth makes you free. Not my smooth personality, thank the Lord. <laughs> the truth makes you free. Whatever you got going for you, you got going for you because the truth got it to you. How you got it, what do you care? You got it. And if you'd rather go somewhere where they're going to tickle your ears and make you feel good about yourself and you never get the truth and somehow justify that that's better for you and your family because, well, I just feel better about myself. All the way until the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, it's your choice. For now, anyway, it's still a free country. You're going to take a stand for the truth? People are going to criticize you. They're going to do it, and they're going to do it tomorrow. They're going to do it the next day. Tell the truth. Tell nothing but the truth. And if you have to, tell the whole truth. But that's how you deal with it. And God can give you an effective ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this word. Lord, it is really something when we dig into it and we get to understand some of the things the Apostle Paul went through. We may never have understood it like that before. But Lord, we can relate. Uh, we understand what it's like to deal with people because people are people. We're, we're all of flesh and, well, sometimes we let our flesh control us and sometimes good brothers and sisters, they're not bad people. They just in the moment have succumbed to the flesh and the influences of the devil in this world and their pride and their egotism or whatever it might be have controlled them for some time and they decide they need to fight. They need to fight for them. They need to fight for their reputation. They need to fight for their idea and their identity and we don't even have an identity. We're dead and our life is hidden you. And we rejoice in that because we don't want the alternative. Well, man, I don't want to stand before you as me. I want to stand before you as Jesus. <laughs> so Lord, I pray that you would cause us all to search our own hearts, and I pray that you would be honored by what you find. And if in any area we need to make it right, I pray that even now as we come before you in worship one last time that the brothers and sisters would make it right. And I pray, Lord, as we give our offerings to you as the song is over, that's an act of worship. It's an act of sincerity. It's an act of being truthful. We owe you everything. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd be honored as we stand now and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's do that. Let's stand to our feet. Let's wrap up this service one last song. And man, if you've got business to do with the Lord, you do it.